Listener Production. Today, we're mixing things up. As always, we're bringing you a captivating conversation with a well-known person. But this time, we'll be getting to know one of our own. Political reporter, author and co-host of The Briefing, Annika Smethurst. I distinctly remember someone from Malcolm Turnbull's office coming around when Donald Trump's phone call to Malcolm Turnbull had been leaked. Annika is a double Walkley Award winner and has worked in the press gallery at Parliament House in Canberra and now covers state politics for The Age newspaper in Melbourne. In 2019, she became the accidental poster girl for press freedom when her house was raided by the Australian Federal Police over a story she'd written. Seven police officers raided Ms Smethurst's home in June after she published a story containing national security leaks. Detailing a bid by Home Affairs to grant the Electronic Spy Agency, the Australian Signals Directorate, the power to spy inside Australia's borders. It is outrageous that Annika Smethurst's house was raided. Leading to accusations that Australia's security agencies were trying to intimidate journalists and also whistleblowers. The weekend list is on its way, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen. But first, here is my interview with the thoughtful, intelligent and incisive Annika Spethurst, who is a newly minted author. Annika Smethurst from The Briefing Podcast. Welcome to The Weekend Briefing. This is a bit weird. It is. I'm a big fan of the show. Long-time listener, first-time caller, as they say, Jan. (laughs) And vice versa, and vice versa. We're going to start at the beginning with you because this is a chance for our briefing listeners to get to know their hosts a bit more. Tell me about little Annika. What kind of kid were you? Little Annika. I would say I was a serious kid. Um, (laughs) I was a bit of a worrier. According to yeah. my mother, I was an only child, which uh, those things are rather common, actually. So I was always determined, pretty sure I was going to go into journalism from quite a young age. And lo and behold, here I am. I worry a lot less now and I'm a lot more go with the flow. But I think my parents were quite um, concerned about me early on about how sort of, I guess, serious I was. <laughs> What was it about journalism that you were drawn to? Because I like, I feel like most kids want to be ballet dancers or firefighters or movie stars, right? What was it about journalism that you liked? I probably went through my phase of wanting to be, you know, an actress or a singer before discovering my skill set didn't really match either of those professions. <laughs> Look, for me, and I've spoken about this with a number of my colleagues, I found newsrooms. I've worked in the Herald Sun and the age in Melbourne, there's a lot of country kids there. And I'm a country kid. I was born in Echuca on the border uh, and went to school in Bendigo. People from the country, there are limits on your world, maybe less so now with the internet and easier travel and things like this. But the big lights of Melbourne just seem amazing, let alone the world of people you can meet and interesting things you could cover. I was a huge AFL fan. Um, My family quite into politics. So these worlds were spoken about, were read about, were on the TV. And it just seemed, I was really inquisitive, you know. Um, It wasn't that I was excellent at English. People always go, oh, you're a journalist. You must be able to spell well, well, I can't. (laughs) 
I always asked a million questions. I wanted to be in that world. And I just do notice a disproportionate amount of country people that end up in um, city newsrooms. And I feel like we must all share that sort of deep inquiring nature to try and see what's happening in the big wide world. Those first few years as a working journalist are notoriously a bit of a shock, right? You're kind of getting a Mm. crash course in something you've thought about theoretically. Tell me about a time when that shock was really stark where in your early career you had a moment of realisation of what exactly you had gotten yourself into. It's a strange one. I um, had a slightly different journey. I came to Melbourne and went to Monash University and and studied journalism. Um, Then I went back home. I worked in Bendigo for a couple of years. So uh, country papers are different. You're not sort of covering those stakeouts and and things that are going to appear on the front page of the paper. It's far more nine to five and gentlemanly and you're writing about local rotary clubs and all those sort of things. But you are doing it on a skeleton staff, which is really interesting. It was sort of like one journalist, uh, one editor, and if the editor took a time off, like I found myself writing an editorial 12 weeks in because there's no one else to do it. You know, you're often yeah. taking photos to yourself. And I always tell country people, well, not just country people, city people, anybody that wants to be a journalist, go to the country. A lot of people don't feel that they can. They don't have networks there. And, and I was lucky enough to go to my own hometown, but I would have gone anywhere because you end up knowing everybody. Like as a local journo, it's like a British police show. You know the local copper and you know the local councillors and you get to know all these people. So it's actually the best way to move to a new city is to be the local journo because everybody wants to know you and you want to know everybody. The big wide world did wait and I got a cadetship with News Corp and ended up at the Herald Sun. They have a pretty good program. You get to go through like the Geelong Addy and the Suburban Paper and the Weekly Times, our sort of farming paper. So you really get to learn about a lot of things. And you ask about when I really was out of my depth or didn't know what I was doing. I When I was at that farming newspaper, which I love, I love the Weekly Times, I had to cover a dressage event in Werribee. I know nothing about horses. I had to write a thousand words on this competition. And the people reading it, you know, know dressage really well. So uh, a lot of it is faking it till you're making it, but you're a journo, so you just ask a lot of questions so you don't look ridiculous. You know, that makes me think of how we all are when we watch the Olympics and we're watching sports that we don't normally follow, like the dressage, and you, you, you watch topic, for 20 yeah. minutes and suddenly <laughs> you're like, no, I'm I am an expert. An expert. I Absolutely. am an expert. <laughs> <laughs> you learn like three, you know, special things about it and next minute, you know, you can talk about it. A jack of all trades, that's what journos are, masters of none. Annika, can you tell me about when politics started to creep into your journalism world? You said it was something that your parents talked about at the dinner table, but for you, once you were a journo, once you were working in that Herald Sun newsroom, when was it that politics became something that you thought, okay, I want to make that my career? In some ways it was natural, in some ways it was inevitable. Um, Politics was always spoken about home and I guess I assumed everybody's home was like that because you only know what you grew up with. There were some very strong views, very differing views, which I'm actually really, I appreciate now a lot more. I had members of my family put their hand up and run for seats in parliament. Um, So it was just always on the agenda. Political books were always sitting around and I just assumed this was normal. Uh, I realised pretty quickly it wasn't that everybody has that experience. I always had a strong interest in politics. Even at high school, I was reading political biographies and things like this. So I remember being asked pretty early on in the Herald Sun if I would be interested in going to cover state politics. I just couldn't believe that 
there was a few others that were sort of unsure. They'd become journalists, but I was told they weren't sure they liked politics. And to me, politics is the basis for everything. Like if you're a sports reporter, you have to understand politics. We talk about politics as in Canberra or, you know, things like this. But understanding how people work, the powers that are involved, you can go from politics to almost any round of journalism and it would help you. So I jumped at the chance. I guess I didn't expect it to dominate quite so much of my life. I only was in the newsroom doing general news, sort of like bushfires and car crashes for about six months when I was lucky enough to go down to um, state politics first and then to Canberra. I don't know why I love it. I love the personalities. I love that it's the centre for decision-making you know, you walk in Parliament House, whether that be in Melbourne or Canberra or Sydney, there's something special about them. These buildings are historic. You know, they've been where our country that we know today and, you know, the more recent history of Australia has been shaped, laws have been made, arguments have been had. It's amazing. I'm just really drawn to that. I assumed everybody was. Uh, that is not the case. But they talk about journalists watching the first draft of history and writing the first draft of history. And obviously people go and do it better. And we'll see that with coronavirus, you know, people will write about this for generations, but the journals that have sort of watched it unfold at a state political level or a federal political level and written about it every day, they are documenting that first draft of history. That's where historians will go. Sometimes we get it wrong, but it's a real privilege. It, it really is the best job and I'm so lucky I still enjoy it, to be honest. The Press Gallery in Canberra is a place that gets talked about a lot in the media. But I think for most people, visualising it and understanding how journalists work alongside one another is probably more difficult. Can you tell us a little bit about the Press Gallery in Australian Parliament House? It's weird, isn't it? Because I was the same before I went up there. And Outside of it, I think people sort of go, oh, there's News Corp versus, um, you know, Fairfax and, you know, there's Channel 7 and they're competitive with Channel 9 and all this sort of stuff. Well, you go up there and there's actually not a lot of journalists in this country because we don't have huge numbers of newspapers and TV stations because it's expensive to make news. So everybody knows everybody. It is implanted in the parliament, which is really rare. I've since been told. So we are on the Senate side of Parliament House on level two, it's like a rabbit warren, all these little offices. Uh, no one has big Lux offices. Um, you know, the big names when I first arrived, Laurie Oakes was still there. Michelle Grattan's there. These sort of people, names you see. We're all sort of in these pretty rundown 1980s offices, often open plan. Everybody's mates. Um, most people, it is competitive. It's also, as I say, so we've got a pass to Parliament House, which means you can just front up and knock on a senator's door. So like if Jackie Lambie's in the news that week, you can just wander on down. She might not let you in. Um, you can, you know, stand in the coffee queue and you'll have a Greens MP in front of you and a One Nation MP behind you and, you know, that staff you saw at the pub last night. So it's very strange. That can, as we've obviously seen recently, lead to some problems working in these close confines, but it actually is a privilege and I think it helps us to do our job well because, I've read a little bit about the theories behind that and the thought was that when you all work together and, and see people in a normal setting, you no longer see them as sort of these evil boogeymen and often that's how politics is set up in the news. It is a bubble. It can become really bad if you don't go out and see the wide world but it's also this amazing privilege to be working in that building every day to see you know laws be made, arguments be had Um you know, incredible moments in history and you get to meet some really cool people. I worked in Canberra too for five or odd 
years and I worked as a ministerial advisor and I can tell you, Annika, that even when I was quite good friends with a lot of the journalists, I still got a little bit nervous. I always got a little pang of nervousness every time I crossed over to those Senate corridors into the press gallery. I just felt like I was I was kind of on not enemy territory but foreign <laughs> ground. Yeah, totally. Um, I hear media advisors who have been around a lot longer than me say that. And also you, someone in your position, um, it's funny, you sort of sit at your desk and later in the day you'll have somebody pop over from the opposition's leader's office and someone pop over from uh, the government's office and they'll just inquire what are you writing for tomorrow you know and you know they're going to go back and tell their boss and you know they're going to try and spin their lines and some days that's a hard job (laughs) I distinctly remember someone from Malcolm Turnbull's office coming around when Donald Trump's phone call to Malcolm Turnbull had been leaked (laughs) and try to talk it down like not much of a story mate like we put it on the front page like Annika honestly like it's back of the paper sort of stuff like no one really (laughs) cares surely this isn't going to be a big story and usually that's when you know it's a really big story (laughs) and even they knew that that was like probably not going to work but good on them for giving it a go yeah (laughs) Annika you wrote a story for News Limited in April of 2018 that resulted a year later in police raiding your home can you tell me about that story So the point of it was that we have five spy agencies in this country. Some of them look at us internally, like ASIO. Some of them look at external threats, which is the ASD. They look at online external stuff and they wanted to change their powers to look at us. Now, I'm not saying there's not baddies here that need to be looked at, but it's a huge dramatic shift. It's set up this way so that they don't overlap and they've all got their clear roles. And the ASD has been around since World War II. Uh, There had been reviews saying they don't need to look at us. And then the government was going to grant them powers to be over to read our emails and, you know, look at our online activity without us knowing effectively. And I learned about this. I knew that writing about it would be a tad controversial. Um, I worked for the Sunday Herald Sun and Sunday Tally at the time and all the Sunday mastheads. We put it on the front page. It was investigated. They said the AFP were going to have a look into it. That was in April 2018. In June 2019, I was at home on a Tuesday morning. I hadn't thought about this in a long time. And five and then seven police officers who were armed came to my house with a warrant and I had no right, I had nothing I could do. I had to hand over my phone. I had to hand over my computer and they spent about seven and a half hours searching my entire apartment for anything linked to this story. That was half the, you know, randomness of it, that it was so much later. If I was such a threat to national security, I thought they might've popped over a little sooner. In the interim, I'd taken a trip to Iraq with the defence minister. So obviously they didn't think I was too much of a threat. But um, on that day, I was, you know, public enemy number one. I'd, I'd put Australia at risk in their view and they wanted to find out how I got this story. How was that for you at a personal level? Because I've, I've got to say, just hearing that makes me shiver and I've, I've heard this story before and I suspect I would rather have police search my home than look at my phone and my computer. Oh, my God, yes. I'm 33 now, so I'm, I think I was 30 or 31 at the time. A 31-year-old female's phone... <laughs> is it's private let's just take out the professional you know value of that um the who I text and the politicians numbers I have and what we text about 
the private stuff on that, like the notes I make, and I'm sure they're boring, right, to cops, but I'm sure people listening who have their phone and Google silly things and write down goals in their, you know, or books they want to read or things in their notes, uh, screenshots of dresses they want to buy or things like this. I know that's what the police weren't looking for, but they were able to see everything. And I'd had an iPhone for 10 years and back, like everything was sort of available because it was in the cloud and I had to hand over my passwords. This is the warrant covered all of this. So they tried to reassure me that's not what they were after. With text messages, they eventually did put a um, a year, a few sort of a timestamp restriction on it. So they didn't go too far back, but they were there for seven and a half hours and they had access to everything. And it made me feel sick. But I guess I would say I, I did lose my innocence a lot that day. I acted really tough. I didn't cry in front of them. I even gave them a little bit of lip, occasionally the police, when I didn't like what they were doing. But privately, I was a mess and it messed me up for a long time. Um, it wasn't just that. It was also, obviously, there was cameras outside my house. The New York Times were ringing me. I was like, I'm just going to go back to work and nobody's going to know this happened. And it freaked out my family. It ended up in the high court. It was just this drama I didn't want, um, I didn't ask for. I like writing the news, not being the news. It's usually a rule journos try and follow. And it just, yeah, I guess it shook my innocence and, and really contributed to why I took a bit of a career change too, which I'm lucky I had that lesson early. But yeah, it was something I wouldn't wish upon anyone. You have got a book coming out on September 15th, so only a couple of weeks away. It is called The Accidental Prime Minister. Am I right in saying it's the first biography of Scott Morrison as Prime Minister? It is. No one really knows much about him. (laughs) To put this in context, the last two Prime Ministers had books about them before they became Prime Minister. So, And you talked about journalists being the people who write that first draft of history. Mm. This is, to an extent, not the first draft, but it's still an early draft because you know, Scott Morrison hasn't stopped being Prime Minister yet. How do you... He is still alive you, too. Exactly. You can offend him. How do you set about writing a biography that is in progress? It is hard. I think I left my newspaper job in September 2020 and I was going to take six months off. I just, the pressure had been quite a lot. I'd eventually won my high court case. My case was wrapped up, but it did change me. It did make me think about priorities. I wanted to move back. We'd had the pandemic. I'm a Victorian and I'd been in Canberra for seven years and I just wanted to change my life up a bit. I went to TAFE and studied gardening design for a little bit. You did not. Uh, So I did and loved it. I know. But I was quickly contacted by a book publisher who said, oh, you'll be bored getting your nails done every day. This is not you. Write a book. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to write a book. I like this. So I found the early stuff interesting because I went to the National Library. If anyone is ever in Canberra or from Canberra, it is an amazing resource. I'd lived there for years and never been there. I found all of like Scott Morrison's yearbooks, like every school submits their yearbooks. So then I could find his, you know, schoolmates by going on LinkedIn and looking up their names and contacting them. That is a horrifying piece of news that the National Library has my yearbook. I know, it scared me too. 
what silly things did I write and stupid pictures of myself, but that's something we all have to live with. It kind of felt like investigative work. Like I'd find one person and then I'd send them a message and they'd go, he was the year below me, but I know this person. And I loved it. And that doesn't change. And that's not on the public record. And I found like I was finding a lot of that out for the first time myself. And then of course I moved on to different phases of his life where I guess it's a little bit more on the public record. So I spoke to a lot of politicians and former prime ministers and things like this, but I really enjoyed the process until the end, right? It was like, well, where do we end this? It was due in January. I didn't hand it in January because I was moving house and planning a wedding and just didn't get it done. So, which was almost fortuitous because if you had have cut it off in January or February, 2021, Scott Morrison had basically handled the pandemic pretty well. There had been the outbreak in Victoria, but nowhere else. JobKeeper had been quite a success. It still is a success. I'm not saying that program wasn't a success. But obviously, since then, we've had the Brittany Higgins allegations. We've had the obviously terrible rollout of the vaccine, which has really changed the narrative. So even now, I felt weird cutting it off because what I did learn about Scott Morrison is people underestimate him repeatedly throughout his career, which is why I think he's actually been quite successful and risen to where he has now so quickly. So I wouldn't even write him off after the sort of disastrous six months he has had. But eventually you do have to, you know, it's a biography. I've got to cut it off now. He could be prime minister for 15 more years or he could lose in, you know, five months and we never hear from him again. So I no doubt think we will probably update it after the election and I'll just whack a chapter on. What I've learned being in Canberra and, you know, I know you worked for a political party with Jamba. I feel like you'd probably agree with this, that, you know, the people you see on the television and who you might like or dislike, they're far more complex. Like all of us are, right? Nobody yeah, of course. really fits into this. Um, well, maybe some, a small number of people do, but most people, you know, you can hate bits of them and like bits of them and they've got flaws and strengths. And I learned that about Scott Morrison. I hope when people read it, they feel the same. And um, whether they like him or not, they read it to understand him a little bit more because like it or not, this guy does lead the country. Annika Smethurst, thank you so much for asking the uncomfortable questions and thanks for being my <laughs> guest on The Weekend Briefing. No worries. It was great to chat. That's it for my conversation with Annika Smethurst. You can, of course, catch her most weekdays on The Briefing podcast. You can also buy her book, The Accidental Prime Minister, which is available for pre-order now on Booktopia, and you will get your copy in the middle of September. Up next, The Weekend List, so don't go away. Welcome back, Tate McGregor, and welcome to all of you to The Weekend List. Now, we're going to recommend very cautiously and carefully, everyone, remembering that a lot of you are stuck at home and not able to do a whole lot. So in that vein, Tate, you've got an app for us. This is an app that I've been getting around with my friends through our Zoom hangouts. It's called Gartic Phone. G-A-R-T-I-C phone.com and it's kind of like Chinese whispers but through drawing. So essentially you log on, you all log into this app and then it comes up with write a sentence and you write a sentence and then that will be given to another one of your friends and then your friend gets that sentence and they have to draw a picture. Then you'll get given one of your friend's pictures then you have to write a sentence of what you think that picture is. At the very end of the game it goes through what the original sentence was through the drawings, what people thought it looked like to the final product. And it's 
pretty funny. It's actually really good to see people's drawing abilities and, you know, just the weird things that they think a drawing can look like. It's a lot of fun. I love that. I think that sounds really, really cute. And at the moment we're all like we're all up for stupid sort of silly mindless stuff that normally we wouldn't be, right? Like we're just in a different headspace. Yeah. I want to recommend a Netflix watch. You're all surprised, aren't you? A Netflix watch. Who would have thought? I want to recommend The Chair, which is on Netflix now, and I am absolutely binging and you need to add it to your list. Firstly, every episode is only 30 minutes and it's a comedy series. And I think we're all keen on that right now. We don't necessarily want those long watches. It's focused around a character called Dr. Ji Yoon Kim, who is the first woman to chair the English department at the prestigious Pembroke University. She is played by Sandra Oh of Killing Eve and Grey's Anatomy fame. And if that doesn't sell you, I don't know what will. But basically it does a really good job, this show, of showing the efforts of someone trying to change the academic system that has been in place for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years from within. And the characters are so well done, so well rounded. It is produced by Amanda Peet, who you will know from her roles in shows like Dirty John and Brockmire. 10 out of 10 so far. I'm loving it. Oh, there she is. Our first lady chair. Woman, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. We're in dire crisis. I wouldn't be surprised if the president asked for Bill's resignation. Can he stay for dinner? No. No wonder nobody wanted to marry you. Are you too involved? My defending Professor Dobson has nothing to do with my feelings for him. I've heard only good things about that show. It's definitely on my watch list. But look, I'm going to suggest something that is a bit of a longer watch as well, a bit more of the hard hitting. I've been really getting into my um, medical world at the moment. This one is based off the hit podcast. It's called Dr. Death. It's on stage. And tread with caution, I would say. It's pretty gruesome. It definitely shows surgeries, but it's based around Dr. Christopher Dunch, who is a neurosurgeon um, with a lot of botched practices. So it is based off a real-life story, features the actors Anna Sophia Robb, Alec Baldwin, Christian Slater, Joshua Jackson, a really great cast and it's kind of harrowing. It's pretty scary, not going to lie. It's the question of whether this is a poorly trained doctor or whether he's sadistic enough to do these botched surgeries on purpose. And it goes through a chase. Um, You meet the people or the dramatised versions of the people he's operated on and it's scary to think that this was um, once real life. So if you're wanting something a little more hard-hitting than the chair, Dr Death, maybe listen to the podcast first. Hey, doctor. I heard you came across some of Christopher Dunch's surgeries. Sir, there's a lot of bleeding. Focus on your job. How is the patient? Perfect. There's a hemorrhage here. You need to fix it. So there were no complications? I don't have complications. I think for me that goes in the category of the people recommending I watch movies like Pandemic right now. Not for me, but for those of you who like pain and who like to upset yourselves... Dive into Tate's recommendation. I um, have an Instagram account that I want to recommend. I'm not sure I've done this before. I want to recommend Please Hate These Things. It is the best account on Instagram at the moment and it is just photos of people's homes and the way architecture and items have been built or crafted that is either absurd or ugly and sometimes just plain stupid. It is 
a joy. Every morning I get up and I'm doing my doom scrolling and I'm looking at the numbers of COVID infections and I'm thinking about children being infected and I'm worried about the future. And suddenly there is someone's home and the bushes out the front of their house have been manicured to look like toilets. And I feel better. I hate it. And I'm like, what's wrong with you people? And then I feel better. This account is full of that. And if you just need a couple of seconds each day to laugh at something, this is for you. I love that. I'm totally going to add that to my doom scroll as well. Thank you for being a part of the weekend briefing. We have so enjoyed your company. If you would like to make sure that you never miss an episode, then you need to follow us. The best place to do that is in the listener app, or you can press subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, we would so appreciate it if you left us a lovely review and maybe a kind rating as well. We will be back bright and early on Monday morning from 6am where Annika and Tom will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.